welcome to episode three of the Resonate Radio podcast. I'm extremely excited to bring this one back. It's the Russell Bennett episode. A lawyer, cannabis lawyer up here in Canada. We have a wonderful discussion about the, uh, I mean, just the transformation of the Canadian cannabis industry and what it is today, how it was set up, who it's successful for. Light one up, sit back, relax. I'm also excited to give you the perspective of the coffee shops over in Amsterdam. Uh, we have a co-host on here as well to help us out with that. Much love, everybody. Let's sit back and relax. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here with you guys. You know, any any chance I get to meet new people in the cannabis industry, cannabis-friendly people, it's a, it's a good day. And uh, from where I sit, um, I'm uh, I'm coming to you uh, from Toronto, Canada. Uh, we are, uh, for those of you who don't know Canada, we're, if you know the Great Lakes, those five Great Lakes, we're on the top of Lake Ontario. And so uh, we have been legal here for ca- cannabis legalization since October 17, 2018. And I decided to become a cannabis lawyer on 420 of 2018 because I thought that was the best day to, to um, start a law firm. And uh, set my hourly rate at $420 an hour. Because I think, you know, you just got to use 420 as much as you can. So I come from kind of the legacy uh, environment from the mid-90s really was where I cut my teeth on learning about cannabis. I was, uh, I smoked weed when I was in high school and um, loved weed way more than beer or wine or the scotch that I stole from my parents' uh, liquor cabinet to share with some boys. And, uh, and you know, um, I just didn't get, I didn't, at that time, I, I was this privileged middle-class white kid growing up in Toronto, and I didn't understand how I was a criminal by smoking a joint, um, but I was. I was definitely a criminal. I, I could have gone to jail. I didn't, thankfully. And, um, and then when I started growing my own plants in my parents' backyard, um, they didn't know what it was. And I could have gone to jail for life for cultivation, uh, but I didn't, fortunately. And uh, I just kind of fell in love with the idea of this plant that takes you somewhere different. So that was kind of the beginning of my um, my interest in cannabis. And I, uh, when I, when I got out of law school, I visited my brother. This is a long bio, by the way. So please feel free, because I, I, I can I can talk so long. So please just interject with questions at any time, okay? So when I got out of law school, I became a lawyer. No worries, brother. We got you. <laughs> okay. I um I visited my brother in a little town just west of Toronto called Guelph. And it was in the in the mid-90s when cannabis stores were just starting to come into vogue it was called they were called hemp stores and uh and so this hemp store called hemp asylum had the regular bongs and pipes and you know magazines and stuff like that but on the counter there was a stack of flyers and i just become a lawyer and i picked up the flyer and it and it said hemp boy launches constitutional challenge of canada's drug law and i was like what the hell is this so i looked i flipped the flyer over and there's a list of all these doctors and um, PhDs that are coming to testify on his behalf. And I thought, this is pretty, 
outstanding effort by Hemp Boy, whoever this Hemp Boy guy was. So I, uh, I surfed the website, found out it was none other than Christopher James Clay, same age as me, he was 26 at the time, and he had been arrested by then twice by London police, first for selling seeds from his store called Hemp Nation for two years without any problems, and then uh, the second time got busted for selling clones, little tiny cuttings of the plant to an undercover officer. So he was facing up to four life sentences in jail for this. And so were some of his employees. So I I was like, okay, I'd taken a lot of film classes in school and I thought somebody's got to make a movie about this guy. This guy's making a serious effort. His, his defense counsel was headed up by a law professor at Osgoode Hall Law School named Alan Young, who was famous in Canada for out, uh, uh, challenging crazy old out, uh, outmoded laws. And, um, and a great criminal defense lawyer, Paul Burstein, and they had a team around them and they had all these witnesses. And I thought, look, this is, this is an opportunity for somebody to make a film. I emailed Chris, this was 1996. Email was just kind of still coming out then. And I was like, is, is anybody making a, a documentary about your case? And he's like, no. I said, uh, I'll do it. I'll do it. He's like, sure. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I, I never made a film in my life, but I knew that this guy was going to make a great subject for a film. So I, uh, yeah, I just, I threw together this, this uh, promo uh, uh, document, 10 pages of dense history of the Canada, Canadian prohibition and why it was wrong. And and I faxed it off. We had fax machines back then. We faxed it off to CBC, the national broadcaster. And they just, they just ignored me. They're like, you're, you're a lunatic. Go away. And so then um, I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just I had a savings from my, my uh, youth of like five grand. So I started pouring money into finding a cameraman. And I'll tell this one side story. This is just one of the things that happens when you, you enter your power as a human and you like you know you're doing something right is all of these crazy things start helping you along your way. So, for example, like I didn't know how to shoot the movie. I had this little handy cam, but so I'm walking home. I was working at my dad's office at the time. I'm walking home, going to go on the subway, and I pass by this camera crew of two guys who are shooting the outside of this bank building. It's at nighttime, and I walk by, and. I'm like, maybe I should ask them if they know if they want to shoot this thing. And I was like, no, I can't do that. That'd be crazy. So I kept walking and I go down the escalator into the subway. And like halfway down, I'm like, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to run up. I ran up the up escalator, the down escalator, high speed. And I was like, hey, hi, guys. Um, uh, sorry to interrupt you. What are you filming? And they're like, who's this homeless dude who's bothering me? And uh, I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually, I'm going to start. I'm making a documentary on legalizing marijuana and the the cameraman's eyes like bing just went like that oh really that sounds exciting he runs and gets his card he gives it to me as an other than Jer jeremy benning who ends up shooting the film putting it together with me and has i don't know if you if you I, if you google him or imdb jeremy benning you'll see the legacy as a cinematographer that man has he's an incredible talent so he shot the thing we filmed 50 hours of footage we interviewed all the expert witnesses. We we had huddles with the 
with the team, uh, the defense team. We were inside. We interviewed his parents, his his supporters, and we made this film. We called it Stoned because um, it was like Chris was being stoned by the not just high, but like by the government was throwing rocks at this kid, this kid for no reason. So um, anyway, uh, CBC, who had rejected my film, uh, then this turn of, another turn of event. I don't know if you guys remember uh, the first ever snowboard Olympian who won the gold medal, Ross Rebliati, a Canadian, snowboarding in 1998 was the first time it had ever been in the Olympics. Ross won the gold medal, but it was stripped away from him because they found THC in his urine, right? So he, he won the gold medal and then he lost the gold medal. Well, weed was in the news every day and CBC called me, said, hey, we want your documentary now. I was like, ah, that's great. The price just doubled. So we got it on air nationally, broadcast every, across the country, and it was the most popular documentary of the year. So that was my, that's how I entered the cannabis industry, so to speak, and my awareness of cannabis. And the beautiful thing about that was I got to talk to all of these experts who had been studying cannabis for years and had and knew all of the myths that were associated with cannabis were totally false. It was not criminogenic. It was not a gateway drug. It did not blow your brains out. It was, it was this really typically benign plant that had medicinal value and a little bit of psychotropic effect. So, and yes, it did have some, some, uh, some warnings for people with schizophrenia and they said youth shouldn't use it. Although that's, I don't, I don't agree with that now, but, um, anyway, so the Chris Clay had his trial and he lost, but the judge, Justice McCart, uh, who was a supernumerary judge at the time. He was like in his 70s. He was an old guy. And he, they brought him out of retirement to, to write this judgment up. He changed the landscape forever because in his judgment, he went through and listed, and you can see it online. I can, I'll post a link for you guys, but you can see the judgment online from 1997. Uh, paragraph 25 lists 13 of those myth-busting facts in black and white that a judge had never done ever before. And for me as a young lawyer, it was like mind-blowing to see that a judge got it. He got it. I mean, he, he found that it was still constitutional for Chris to be ch uh, charged and with possession, but, uh, but he laid the, the framework and so did the defense team with the, finally, the scientific evidence that we had known since the 70s since the Ladane Commission came out in 72 or 73, the final report, since the Schaefer Commission, all of these government um, uh, you know, uh, reports that have been swept under the table and ignored since the 70s. So finally, a judge wrote in black and white. And then that case went up to the Supreme Court. He lost at the Supreme Court, but the, the dissenting opinion was like, no, no, this, is, this needs to change. And that kind of set the wheels in motion for the medical uh, cannabis industry to be to be birthed in Canada by 2001. We had our first medical regulations, the MMAR, Medical Marijuana Access Regulations. And then from there, it was like 15 years of medical patients constantly attacking the government and Health Canada to uh, expand the medical program. And then finally, we had companies come, come online 2013, and then legalization eventually in 2018. So 
Um, I uh, and then just a, a little a little segue back. Um, I was it was in 2003 2004 where I was still pissed that the uh, upset that the uh, government had not legalized, and so I uh, I wanted to write a play, and I wanted to tour this play across the country and tell in a comedic, but not like hammering you over the head with the message. Oh, I didn't want to have a message play. I wanted to have a, a funny and a soulful way of telling the story of a cannabis grower, an underground cannabis grower. So I made him a lawyer, Made his name is Charlie Kovacs, and the play was called Reefer Man. And I wrote it with this woman who became my wife, and she directed me in this play. It was a solo multi-character play. I played like 25 characters, toured the play across the country, and um, it was an amazing 2004 experience going from an audience of four people yeah. in Hamilton, this tiny little town just uh, west of Toronto. Yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to uh, cut you off there. Um, I just wanted to uh, you know, point out a couple of things. I mean, A, wow, uh, that's a little bit of a flexible role, to say the least. <laughs> that's wild, man. Uh, you know, the other thing that's kind of wild is that you've been involved in the industry since the 90s. You know, you've seen some pretty crazy things. I'd love uh, for you to share, you know, I, of course, I was a little bit younger uh, in the mid 90s, so, you know, wasn't terribly too involved yet. Uh, you know, can you please share some of those challenges, some of the changes? I mean, what a wild, you know, transition. Oh, yeah. It, it, so many changes, so many changes, so many weird changes, too, especially living in Toronto with the Ontario government. You know, uh, once Trudeau, once our, our prime minister, um, Justin Trudeau, he once he was um, entered office, because his platform, his campaign was he was going to legalize uh, for the country, he was he was up against Stephen Harper, who was the old, um, uh, longtime uh, conservative prime minister. And once uh, Trudeau was elected, he made good on his promise to legalize. And and so people immediately thought that uh, when he was elected, oh, cannabis is legal now. So in 2016, we had across the country dispensaries. Uh, cannabis stores popping up everywhere, and there, it was an incredible time. It was so beautiful. I mean, I thought this is this is the way it's going to be. It's going to be fantastic. Well, it wasn't that way because in Toronto, the police had other plans. They they formed this project called Project Claudia, and it was a series of raids on these cannabis stores uh, because we weren't legalized yet. So uh, so you know they went around from store to store, busting people, arresting people. Yeah. And, Re refugee Thursday. Uh, refugee Thursday is what it's called in the industry on that day. We all went to Hotbox yes. uh, in Kensington Market. Right. Uh, bless her heart, Abby, Abby Roach, Roach uh, one of the most brilliant human beings in the game. Uh, yeah, we all you know went over there because uh, we were terrified for our lives. Yeah. 100%, brother. I really appreciate you bringing that up. It was. It's sad. It's tragic that the um, see, legalization in Canada is in favor of white capital. It was designed to help and create large companies and left out intentionally the people who had been um, clamoring, protesting, arguing for uh, 
you know, um, uh, screaming for legalization for years. And all those people that were left out uh, are still having a hard time getting back in the licensed industry because they have criminal records, because they don't have access to large amounts of capital, because they don't want to have to apply to the government for a license. And so there's a fundamental disconnect between the illicit and licit industries in Canada. And it's a sad reality that the people who are supposed to be representing Canadians are representing only a certain portion of Canadians and ignored the rest. And so I'm seeing in my practice as a lawyer, uh, you know, people who want to be a part of the industry, the licensed industry, the legitimate industry, because they don't have to fear going to jail or fear, you know, never being able to get a license. They want to be a part of it, but there's, it's really challenging. It's really challenging to get a, a license and it's really challenging to keep the license because the requirements for record keeping and um, uh, CRA or Canadian Revenue Agency compliance and all the rest of it with Health Canada compliance, it's, it, it's very onerous. And we're talking about cannabis here. We're not talking about, you know, arms or weapons. We're talking about a flower, uh, you know, right? I, I know this is, this is um, audio, but like the, the cover of my book is a beautiful um, bud of dosi do that was grown here in Toronto by uh, by an underground grower and and um, I wanted I wanted everybody in Canada and maybe now you know if I could get the book out to the rest of the world to understand what the Canadian legalizing experience was I wanted them to see the plant for what it was and and most people in the legal industry in Canada see marijuana as like the leaf and that's it and so the publisher wanted me to oh, just put a wallpaper of marijuana leaves on your cover. And I was like, no, no, show show what it is. And on the back cover, I have this close-up of a leaf that has trichomes. You can see the little beautiful crystal trichomes on there. So I want people to understand this is a flower. This is not something evil, the way we've been brought up to believe. Um, anyway, so I think that uh, to answer your question, you know, have I, have what what changes have I seen uh, uh, when I entered the market, well, when I entered the the market to be a lawyer in 2018, I saw obviously uh, the transition from all these medical companies who had been licensed to grow just for medicinal purposes, and the 200,000 or so patients that had signed up to these um, companies to be sold weed, but then. Um, have the, seeing those companies transition to the stock market as recreational companies and take their focus away from medicine and put it on the rec market, as it's known. And I, I just thought that that transition uh, just was gross. It was, and, and still to this day, we're, we're talking almost three years in, the medical community is still underserved. It's not, uh, it's, the medical user, the medical consumer, the patient that requires cannabis for medicine still cannot get uh, affordable, reliable access to high quality, high concentrated THC products. They can, and they can't get it over the counter like they can get any other drug in the universe. 
and, uh, and and so it just doesn't make any sense. They still have to go to court to fight for it. And uh, even though we're legalized here, there's just so many problems. Um, one of the one of the main issues I see is that the uh, the legalization did not involve the process of blanket pardons for people. So like we're seeing in New York, New York just legalized the the, the part of their uh, platform is that they're going to offer reparations to people of color that were unfairly maligned by the, the war on drugs, and uh, they're going to offer them blanket pardons. And that, that's a great way to kind of wipe the slate clean, because we know, we know the law was based on racism back in 1923 and the original precursor to that here in, in 1908. We know it was based on racism. You read my book, You'll know, and I, I detail the history, the legal history of it. In 1908, we got the Opium Act. Why? Well, was there too much opium in Canada? Well, apparently there was, and it had to be, you know, crushed. But it wasn't about opium. It was about getting Chinese Canadians out of Canada. It was one law in a series of laws to crush Canadians who are from China, who had been here building our railroad and our infrastructure and now and now we're like by the white canadians who are in power like get it get out and if you read hansard if you read the uh, the the old transcripts of the parliamentary debates you'll see the discussion the unbelievable discussion between members of parliament on how are we going to get rid of the chinese canadians and so the opium act was just was another tool because the chinese canadians couldn't hold property they couldn't own property they couldn't vote and now they couldn't smoke opium. Oh man! So why not? Why not just add cannabis to that soup? And that's what happened in 1923. 1923, cannabis was added to the schedule. And why? Because there was a lot of cannabis in Canada, and there was a lot of problems. No, there was no cannabis in Canada that anybody knew of. Nobody even knew what it was. In fact, there wasn't even a charge under the law for cannabis. For another 14 years 1937 was the first time nice bubbler 1937 was the first time that anybody was arrested for cannabis possession after 14 years of it being on the books ah that's a great reason to add the law right so that's that's the basis of our prohibition for 95 years so what the come on so Blanket pardons are essential. Reparations are essential. Apologies are essential. The federal government must issue formal apologies to anyone who was incarcerated by the cannabis prohibition. And they must. And they must offer the money as a story. As like, that's what you do. When you, make, when you do something that's wrong and you hurt somebody, as we learned in preschool, you say sorry and you try and make amends. And that's exactly what the government should be doing. So legalization in Canada did not involve that, and it should involve that. And that's what's happening in New York. And so Canada, take note from, and that's what I write in the preface to my third edition, Canada, take note of New York, because they're schooling you. This uh, Canada is supposed to be this bastion. And that's a great point as well. Yes. What are these, you know, what 
have been the key things that have gone wrong with legalization. Because that's a thing that I run into consistently is everyone's like, what are you complaining about? It's legal. And then you, you know, you kind of start rolling into decriminalization debates and getting into a whole wide, you know, web of that. So, you know, with the intentional segue of getting into that decriminalization thing as well, what are the things that we screwed up on here with legalization that people, you know, what is the real reason that we're bitching and complaining up here in Canada, brother? Well, decriminalization, let's look at that word, right? The word decriminalization means you're taking something away from being a crime. Currently, cannabis is a crime. Cannabis is still a crime. It's still, the Cannabis Act still falls under the criminal powers. The Cannabis Act is a criminal statute. It's a, it's a Frankenstein mess of a statute actually. It, it, cu- it just brought in provisions from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, namely the possession offense, distribution. So they, they, they split trafficking into selling and distributing, right? So you can put the licensing component on the selling and the distributing. They still have the crime of production and they still have the crime of importing and exporting. And, they, and those crimes still come with heavy penalty. You can still go to jail for 14 years. I mean, that's serious. Why, when, when you can grow this legally now with regulation, why would you ever have to go to jail ever for this again? That's what decriminalization means, is taking the crime away, no longer it being a criminal statute. But they didn't do that. They, they continued it on as a crime. That's why I wrote the book on it, because I was so frustrated. When I, when I, when I was like, oh, we're going to legalize? Where's the law? Let me see it. And then I started reading the draft bill and I started realizing, oh no, they just rebranded the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. That's what they did. And then to, to do the, all the promotion prohibition stuff, they, you know where they copied it from? Tobacco. What? Why would you copy tobacco prohibitions on promotion and bring it in and make it the cannabis, the exact same thing. Do you know if you breach one of the promotion prohibitions, you could be liable for million dollar fine. That's insane. That's a criminal. It's a, that's a that's yeah, a criminal. I've spoken act with marketing you, people in the UK, right? and I give them that marketing promotions, you know, rules and regulations, and they look at me or my the response usually is. So we can't promote this for you. <laughs> and it just becomes, you know, very difficult when you're like, well, yeah, it, pretty much. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, you know, direct their attention to uh, section 17. I'm just going to pull it up here right now so you can, everybody can see it. Well, you can't see it now, but um, hear about it. Um, I'll just read from the book too. So part one has all the nasty prohibitions and offenses. And division one is the criminal activities and division two is the other prohibitions, right? And where we're seeing promotion is section 17, promotion. So, and, and the little language they use comes from tobacco. So get this, I, I have to read this because it's so absurd to me. Here it goes, section 17, the Cannabis Act. Unless authorized under this act, it is prohibited to promote cannabis or cannabis accessory or any service related to cannabis, including 
A, by communicating information about its price or distribution, B, by doing so in a manner that there are reasonable grounds to believe could be appealing to young persons, C, by means of a testimonial or endorsement, however displayed or communicated, D, by the means of, a de of the depiction of a person, character, or animal, whether real or fictional, or E, and this is the best one of all, the language, listen to this language, by presenting it or any of its brand elements in a manner that associates it or the brand element with or evokes a positive or negative emotion about or image of a way of life such as one that includes glamour, recreation, excitement, vitality, risk, or daring. Now, what? Are you kidding me? They're trying to, so, and, and they, they literally took this from the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act and just threw it in there, okay? That's what they did. So you're not allowed to promote any way, anyhow. Now, there are exceptions. One is called informational promotion. So if you are promoting information, and that's not really described, or if you're doing brand preference promotion, which also is not really described. So you go figure it out for yourself. And if you email them and you say, and which I have, I've done, you say, hey, so any guidance here? They write you back this email saying, you know, go to a lawyer. Okay, thanks. That's very helpful. So yes, that's one of the things that sucks under legalization, folks, is this promotional aspect. Now, why would you want to handcuff companies from promoting something that is a medicine, number one, that helps people with their list of things, you know, back pain, insomnia, PTSD, arthritis, you know, I, I just go A to Z with the list, the ever expanding list. You know, I read articles, I don't know if this is true, but I read articles this year that it could even help with COVID. I don't know, they were working on some kind of cannabis remedy for COVID. Anyway, so I don't know how true that is. But anyway, it was interesting. But it, why, why limit the promotion of something that is used as a medicine and is not harmful. In fact, and I write a big part of this in the book about the harm element, about how tobacco is a known carcinogen. We know it kills people. In fact, we have numbers of deaths every year related to, can to the, um, the, uh, 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 the cancer-causing substances in tobacco, right? We know that. And the same with alcohol. We know alcohol now is a carcinogen. I didn't know that it was, but alcohol is also a carcinogen. And that means that what the promotion of alcohol is okay. So I can see on the billboard across the street, a beautiful billboard of a bikini clad woman on the beach with a Corona. And that's acceptable. But cannabis can't be on the same billboard with a woman with a spliff because that and cannabis is not a carcinogen so there's a there's a real hypocrisy happening here right in terms of promotion it doesn't make sense obviously so that's that's a major uh, sticking point the other sticking point was of course the um the uh lack of addressing people who had been part of the legacy market and all of the knowledge that had accumulated within the legacy was not 
easily brought into the licensed market. The government should have made licensing very easy and placed more emphasis on enforcing good quality cannabis grow, right? Why not be encouraged to grow as organically as possible? Why not be encouraged to, um, to uh, you know, grow in, in, um, in a way that you're not gonna get a lot of mold so you don't have to irradiate the, the crap out of it at the end and create this dry, crumbly, disgusting product. You know, why not have the way dispensaries did it pre-legalization where you, you could go into the store, you could touch it, you could smell it. Now everything is antiseptic. It's, it, it's just not, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Now, um, everybody's got their rationale for why the things are rolling out this way. And, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But I think those were those were some of the, the drawbacks of, of legalization. Um, some of the others, um, I could I could go on forever. So you know, stop me at any time here. Um, I, I feel you. I mean, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that legacy one for a moment as well because I think that's a huge part of it. You know, and I think that might be something for you know everybody across the pond might be you know interested to see, you know, how to properly craft this legislation moving forward and. Who are the appropriate people that we need to get in front of these, you know, ladies and gentlemen who are in these positions to actually move this forward? Because as you've kind of touched on already, especially here in Canada, uh, the medical patient has essentially evaporated uh, and the products that are being offered to us are uh, beyond subpar. I don't even, you know, I'm trying to be as polite as possible with that. Uh, as I can, but it's, uh, it's embarrassing, especially, you know, being as a cultivator in this space and seeing, you know, how the sausages are made and who's making them. I mean, it's crazy to me, there should be disclosures on what some of these are companies are doing. I mean, you know, one of these ones that I was at was burning sulfur through the flowering process the entire time. And, um, you oh. know, it's okay on a certain level to kind of do those practices. But at the same time, I mean, for me personally, and where I grew up doing this sort of stuff, that's a no. But number two, you know, if you actually contact the manufacturer and discuss, you know, the actual usage and the usage rates that were happening, they were even shocked that it was happening at that level. And there isn't really a test to kind of go for some of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? So if we have adverse reactions that are happening from people, it's kind of difficult to track it because everything looks clean, quote unquote. Yes. And so from, that's where I really Exactly. Yeah, the lab test report. Yeah, brother, 100%. Oh, yeah. It's everything's fine, but yeah, there are definitely things that just because it's tested doesn't mean that it's still safe in a way and I don't think a lot of people know that. Uh, you know, especially when it comes down to the production of the cannabis itself. I mean, for me personally, my viewpoint is that there is no such thing as medical cannabis in Canada anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these facilities that were quote unquote medical was just an entry for them to ramp up and get recreational. Now, the same flower, if basically if it hits a lower THC percentage, it's going to go into a different brand. If it's good, then it's going to go into the medical brand. And that's how people are leveraging it right now. Um, I feel it's embarrassing if I go onto a portal that has a bunch of products on and, you know, if there's a discount label that's being offered in my medical portal, no, 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 no. That is, that's embarrassing for the industry. And I personally take offense to that. I mean, if all of a sudden you had a subpar version of insulin that wasn't quite as effective or wasn't quite the right stuff, but like, don't worry, it's still insulin, quote unquote. I mean, people would be losing their shit yeah. all over the place, all across the map. That's right. And so 
it's just amazing. It's amazing how, you know, you mentioned it before with kind of the racism that some of this discrimination is rooted in, like Harry Anslinger, my friend. Totally. Shit like that, where it's just, it's unbelievable how the stigmatization has led to the further, uh, you know, just mistreatment um, of the medical patients as well. So that was one of the things too, that I found personally with legalization aspect of it, you know, especially in the cannabis realm is that it just, it failed us as medical patients. So the big thing that I wanted to, you know, ask, especially for my friends across the pond is, you know, what is going to be important now that we have hindsight, brother, what is important for them to remember, like when pushing this legislation to maintain access for patients because in all of this hype and all this craziness and the votes to legalize it that the movement happened here in the country we forgot about people that made it to where it was supposed to be right it's those medical patients that fought for that access and gave us you know the ability to open up these gray market dispensaries and have access for people to do it i don't think everybody remembers the Allard situation and all of like where it really, yes, you know, exactly was prior. So what, what can they learn when they're trying to do this moving forward? Cause we know that there's already big money across the pond. There is those hooks have fallen in a little bit earlier than it happened here in Canada. Right. So how do you feel that they can kind of do that and, and manage that? Uh, well, if there's any kind of a lobby effort uh, to the government, you know, I think that for, first the voice needs to be heard. And then you need to make it clear that 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 the previous incarnations, as in Canada and uh, and and some places in the states, are not are not uh, beneficial for society. That that the way so how how do you do it? I mean, I, that's the key question, right? Who's in power? Who's in charge? Who's going to be making? Who's drafting the legislation right now? Somebody's drafting it, right? It's words on a page, and it's drafted by lawyers that are working in the government, and they're drafting it in certain ways. And how do you get to them before it's you know passed? And how can you in- educate uh, members of parliament in order to uh, to to let them know what's acceptable and what's not? based on previous practices. That's why this book that that, that my book is so important because it, cr- it it crystallizes the Canadian experience and shows the reader why it's it's going why it went wrong or where it went wrong and how it needs to be fixed. And so so I take the time to name all of the medical cannabis litigants from 2001 to 2016 from Parker to Allard. So you can see their cases and you can read their cases fully online. You can understand what they were fighting for as they expanded the medical regulations and why they wanted to expand the medical. And and, and the answer of the question is why that really opens up people's brains a little bit more. There is hope. You know, it's not all black. It's not all uh, darkness. It is, uh, it is encouraging on one hand to see turnarounds in people's attitudes. So, and, we, and, and yet it's still fraught with irony. For example, there was the chief of police here in Toronto, uh, Mr. Julian Fantino. And Mr. Fantino was the chief of police in London 
Ontario, actually, when I was filming my documentary Stone back in, in the 90s. And he's responsible for so many people. I don't, I, it would be an interesting uh, research assignment for somebody in university to figure out how many people did, under his authority as the police chief of those two cities, how many people actually went to jail for cannabis offenses. That would be a great topic for somebody in the criminology department, if anybody's listening to this, to, to undertake. How, what's the number? And maybe approximately. I'm assuming it's in the thousands. So let's just say a couple thousand just to be, just to be safe. But I'm sure it's more than a couple thousand. Now, Mr. Fantino, on the eve of legalization, sees the opportunity as a member of parliament because he's the veteran affairs minister. He's moved into the circles of federal politics. And he visits with veterans. And what are the veterans, the war heroes of our country tell him? They're having PTSD. And you know what they're doing to combat their PS PTSD? They're using cannabis. And he's like, what? Cannabis? And so he becomes educated about the efficacy of cannabis as a medicine for PTSD. And he becomes a proponent of cannabis. In fact, he joins the board of a company called Alifia, which is a uh, clinic that was all ramped all over Ontario, helping people get medical registrations for cannabis use. This is the former chief of police, ladies and gentlemen. Amazing, amazing transformation. Now, I see it as amazing transformation. Other people see it as like the biggest hypocrisy, <laughs> one of the biggest hypocrisies of our nation. Uh, the other one, is our former prime minister. Yeah, put me in that column. I'm in the hypocrisy <laughs> column for sure, brother. You know, yeah, 100%. There, there should, yeah. That, as soon as you said that name, I know people don't have access to the video, but yeah, I was slamming my fist on my table over here. As soon as I hear that name, that man in particular, uh, really appreciate you bringing up that one. That one is a major, a major sticky point for me. Oh, yeah. That's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very interesting character. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a book there somewhere. There's a movie deal there somewhere. Um, and, uh, and, and then it extends even further to our former prime minister, Brian Mulroney, who was a conservative at the time of the Reagan era and the Just Say No campaign that Nancy Reagan affected on the entire planet. Uh, that's where I grew up uh, in the 80s, the Just Say No campaign, right? I remember um, just a brief segue into my past when I was in uh, English class in grade 10, I was a young lad and the, um, the police officer came in as a special presentation for the day. We were, we were relieved of reading, you know, Oliver Twist or something for the day and, uh, and got to, to hear from the police officer with his three panel display case of narcotics paraphernalia. And I was like, ooh. And he was like, yes, and this is cannabis, or this is marijuana, very evil. This is you know, heroin, also very evil, and this is cocaine, all very evil, all very evil things. And I was like, ooh, let me try some. And, and of course, the opposite effect intended on the entire class. And that's when I went out and I tried to find somebody who knew, how do I get some weed? Because I want to try this stuff. So actually, the police had the negative <laughs> reversal effect on me. Anyway, so, uh, so yes, uh, that was during Just Say No. Uh, and uh, just one more little story, a little side, side, segue story. I was rolling my first joint, okay? I'll tell the story of rolling my first joint. So I'm probably 14, 15 years old. 
um, just hit pu- just had puberty happen to me. I was a late bloomer. And so I'm sitting in my uh, friend's house in his bedroom at his desk. And we had come in, we had kind of came and said hi to his, his dad and his grandmother. Grandmother's a little hard of hearing. Hello. Um, and and uh, we went upstairs and we we're like, oh, okay, we've got the baggie of weed, had seeds in it and everything and got the rolling papers and trying to roll this. I had no idea what I was doing. And as we're rolling the joint, we can hear his dad, my friend's dad, yelling at his mother, the grandmother, it's marijuana, it's weed. And he's yelling, I'm looking at my friend going, what the hell is going on? How does he know that we're doing this? Did you tell him? No, I don't know what's going on. Well, on TV, there was a news report of uh, Justice Ginsburg who was going to be appointed to the Supreme Court, but was removed from that possibility because he admitted to smoking a joint. And so it was a news item on the TV. And so his father was yelling, it's, it's marijuana. And I thought, oh my God, he's gonna turn us over to the cops. So, um, okay, so sorry, that, that's just a little personal anecdote. I love telling those little stories. So, um, oh yeah, so. Uh... No, yeah, perfect brother, it's all good. I love it. You're a real dude. And this is an absolute uh, beautiful conversation, man. I am so thankful that you took the time for this. You keep on rolling, brother. It's all good. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, It's thank you for giving me the the platform. I I, I don't get a a chance to talk about this stuff much. So it's it's nice. It's a a nice uh, opportunity. And um, thank you for for asking me to to come on. Is it should we should we um, uh, get back to your list of questions and, you know, maybe, uh, do some, yeah, some... No, absolutely. I'm just going to cut in here. I really, really appreciate you taking the time, Russell. Like that, that's an insane story. And I really, really resonated with when you were, when you were saying, you know, you had the police come in at school and, and give the, I remember it's crazy that you say that that was happening in the eighties, but I'll tell you, I was born in 1997 and when I went to school in the two thousands, we had the same shit. Happening. Oh no. Exactly the same, stuff. nothing, happened, you know? And exactly the same stuff to me. People are coming in saying, all oh, this shit's dangerous. And I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, well, first off, let me figure out why they're saying all this stuff, what's really going on. And then as soon as you start reading on your own and you really start looking into it, you're like, come on. Same reaction as well. About a week later, I was like, fuck, where do I get some weed? So <laughs> I can totally resonate. Awesome. Really seeing how that started. And I wanted to touch on a point that you guys really made with, with the difference between decriminalization and legalization because having worked in a coffee shop in Amsterdam and being in a country where we have such a, you know, people think it's legal. It's really not. It's illegal. Right. It's uh, right. under a Dutch toleration policy. Um, and what we really have there is also a medical system, which works amazingly great. So very few people actually know that the Netherlands is one of those places where you really have access to a recreational, let's say, call it adult use market, where you can go into coffee shops and find everything. Uh, But you also have access to medical cannabis. You also have doctors who are knowledgeable about it, who've been working with this for at least 20 years now. Um, And it's a really, really interesting place on the market. Uh, So I thought that was a really, really interesting point when we we see a a space like the Netherlands uh, in Europe is kind of one of those only points where you have a mixture of both at the same time it's really really interesting where i'm in spain right now for example it is mainly just decriminalized so you still have all those issues with growers being prosecuted all the issions that come with legislation legal problems so 
that I just really wanted to give my take on there. And I really appreciate you you sharing your story with us and, and giving the time also. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, you know, it, it, is, it is an interesting uh, fact that the Canadian government did not look to the Netherlands and did not look to the Amsterdam uh, case for inspiration, considering they're like, you know, that's the, the birthplace of modern consumption and the birthplace of the coffee shop and the birthplace of seeds. And, you know, it just, it, it boggles my mind why they wouldn't seek out people with knowledge on it. It's, you know, <laughs> it just, you know, whenever I don't know something, you know, you, you try, you go to ask somebody who does. That's the, that's the way I, I, I handle my law practice. I got, as a lawyer, I don't know everything about litigation. I don't know everything about corporate law. I don't know everything about trademarks. So I, I go to other people and I find out, you know, you know, I surround myself with people who know more than me. That's what the nations of the world who are coming online with legalizing or decriminalizing need to do is go to countries like and, and situations like the Netherlands that have tolerated it. Now, I, I've heard, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but there has since been a crackdown on coffee shops and, and, a, and a, a shift in the decriminalization and the tolerance of it because, it, the, you know, the Netherlands are traditionally a more conservative society and not, not exciting. They, they allowed the Amsterdam experiment to continue as a hub for tourism, but apart from that, like, you know, that they, they're not really pleased with uh, legalization. Am I right there? Or what's, uh, what's the situation? Yeah, no, you were, you were a hundred percent right there. And, and going back to what I said on, on the standpoint of where they're, where they're at right now is really looking at, um, they've selected, they've gone through a trial phase of having growers, uh, kind of prove themselves. Um, and we have certain cities in the South of the country, uh, that have gone on and signed up to this new government program. So the, the supply chain is actually government controlled. Um, but there's still very, very little info on the testing, on the quality, where the seeds are coming from. What does this actually mean for uh, the adult use market? Um, and they're really starting to put a more of a cap on it. So, you know, this Amsterdam experiment that you referenced that's been going on for quite a while was, is really starting to come to an end, especially in the past year. This is also why I've, I've been down now, moved from Amsterdam down to Spain, where we're seeing this industry really spark up a bit more. But Amsterdam is really slowed because of uh, certain political changes, like you referenced. The mayor of Amsterdam is also cracking down super hard mm -hmm. on both cannabis and prostitution. So the prostitution that Amsterdam is also known for and famous for is also being pushed out right. of the city, inner city. They want to move it out to the city, uh, city limits uh, and also restrict tourists from coming into coffee shops. So we're really seeing that crackdown. But where I think we're going to go in Europe. Right. Uh, is really on the medical tourism side. And as people start to experience and explore the advantages that we actually have in Europe, which is in any one of the 26 Schengen countries, you have the ability to go to, for example, a doctor in the Netherlands, get your prescription, and with full validity, take it back home to your country, right? Because it's in Europe. The Schengen Agreement was written in 1997, and it says that any medical prescription or paperwork that is issued in one Schengen country is reciprocated in another and i'm pretty sure that you're also familiar with the types of reciprocity agreements so this is a really unique case that we have in europe that still not many people are taking advantage of fully and uh, speaking from experience it's still very hard even down here in spain to explain to a spanish police officer that the weed right. that you have from the netherlands is actually legal in his country and he's saying ah, i don't think so so it, at this point so it's uh it's still a very much uh an, an interesting place to be 
But I think, like I said, referencing that medical tourism standpoint, I think we're going to see a lot more when it when it opens up, especially with people traveling more. Uh, once people realize that you know, <laughs> right. it is their medicine, it is their right, you have the absolute right to have your medicine with you at all times, no matter where you are going. Uh, and, you know, nobody has the right to even look in your medical container. If the police officer wants to open it, he has got to get something there. He's got to get a pharmacist on board. All this sort of stuff that, you know, patients really need to start being aware of their rights. And I think that's something that at least we in Europe should look to in Canada is what you guys did with the patients, because you guys had active patients. You had patients that were thirsty, that were hungry for a change, that wanted this so bad that they actually did something about it. And I'm going to be really honest, it's a sad situation in Europe right now because patients don't really understand their rights. They're not taking full advantage of it. And once they realize something like this happens, they're like, oh, I'm going to go back to my weed dealer in the corner. I'll pay a little bit more for it, but I'd happily take that risk. And this is not where we want to be right now. So I'm, I'm Liam and I'm done speaking. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. No, that's good. That's good information. I think, too, as, as um, countries come along to uh, to look at legalization, they uh, are hindered by the United Nations Convention. Uh, the single convention on narcotics is the 1961 treaty signed by, you know, countless countries. And it was a sticking point for Canadian legalization for years. Everybody would say, oh, we can't legalize or we're subject uh, signatory to the single convention on narcotics. Well, no, that, that doesn't apply. We have, we're still a signatory, but it, it's not enforceable. That's the thing. It's, uh, it's, a, it's basically international suggestion. So uh, if a country is putting up uh, you know, a fuss over, well, we're signatory to, you know, nah, you don't have to be uh, so worried about that. Nothing, the, 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 UN, the, the UN police are not coming around to arrest people uh, for, for cannabis crimes. Um, so because, and, and that's, that's why you have, you know, the, the, the blessing of Europe is you have all these amazing countries in such close proximity. So, you know, that's, uh, that's a wonderful thing, one country after another and, and the cross ability to be able to have medicine in one country and, and bring it to another. I mean, that's, that's, that's only going to spread much, much, uh, much more quickly. I bet you, I bet you that that's going to be, uh, I think patients will, will find their cojones, uh, soon in, in Europe because they're, they're not going to want the dishweed of uh, government. They're going to want, you know, well-grown and, uh, and high quality, uh, products. They're just going to, you know, they're not going to stand for it. Yeah. Amen to that. I've been trying to make sure that people understand that challenge of what we did here in Canada and what they could possibly do over there. I don't think that people actually realize that we did go to court about this. We did fight at the top levels of the country and I don't, nobody really seems to know that over there, you know? Uh, so that's the thing, you know, I've really asked some of these medical patients, I've spoken with medical patients in Norway, for example. Uh, and, you know, if you sign up for medical cannabis there, uh, Russell, you get your driver's license taken away. And in order to get your driver's license back, you actually have to undergo a drug test and make Whoa. sure that there's no more THC in the system, brother. So you want to talk about some messed up things going down. Like, you know, and I'm telling these people like, hey, uh, so we went to the uh. Supreme Court for access. What do you think about that? <laughs> Just straight to the chase on that one because you i feel at some point you do have to fight fire with fire and so it's very you know just so yeah heads yeah. up that's what's happening in norway brother there's some weird situations going on wow we have situations like that and then we, we have it you know where 
even we see that in one Schengen country and then in the Netherlands we have the fight between the actual government and the Ministry of Health where the Ministry of Health says based on all our findings based on our reviews based on the evidence we have and based on everything that we've concluded medical cannabis users who've been using medical cannabis for at least a period of two weeks who have been able to adjust to the effects and able to particularly kind of with their doctor discuss to what level it affects them uh, are considered safe to drive again. Uh, this is what the Ministry of Health says. The government says mm. no. Ministry of Health says yes. And if it were to come to a case on case, it's kind of like, yeah, you know where this would go. So it's it's very, very difficult in Europe at the moment, especially with the driving side. And this is coming from my personal experience of losing my driver's license in Germany at the time when I had a friend with a medical cannabis prescription oh. who was allowed to drive only while consuming at the time. And I was, um, you know, it, it's a very, very difficult situation and conversation happening in Europe at the moment around, uh, especially the, these cases. Yeah, that that's distressing to hear. You know, uh, Norwegians ha have to uh, lawyer up. They really do. They have, they've got to they've got to get this in front of the courts and take some of these international precedents, like the Canadian example. We've got 15 years of litigation, and uh, and 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 what we have here in Canada is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So every law has to be held up to the standard of the charter. And that's, a, that's I, I'm not sure what Norway has, but I'm sure that's similar in each country that you can't just make arbitrary laws. They have to be held to a certain standard. And if it's a standard that is in breach, then you know the law goes or it gets amended at the very least. So that's what was happening here is that the right to liberty, the right to security of the person, uh, those rights were being infringed uh, under Section 7 of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So the right of liberty, because you're, you're able to be incarcerated for using your medicine or the, the security of the person. And, uh, and so many challenges were successful on, those, on that basis. And, and so was the widening of the medical program because, well, what if a patient couldn't smoke because they, they just couldn't smoke a joint, to, so they needed to ingest it somehow. Well, then that was the Smith case. It went to the Supreme Court. Well, you should be entitled to consume cannabis in any way that you want, as long as it's giving you the intended effect, which is relief from whatever symptoms you're experiencing. So that you know, and and so those cases can serve as precedent for other countries as well. And they they must they must. We can't. They're not going to fall to the wayside. They're they're there. People challenged the government and won. So. They can use those as examples for their own countries. So this is something actually really interesting. I really appreciate you mentioning that as well, how it comes back to the the rights and also how the legal system works, because this is something that when you mention now Canada, when you mention these rights, it straight away pops up into my mind. I'm thinking, why isn't France doing this? Right. Exactly. Question. That's right. And, and, and they should right. be. They should be. They have to be. They eventually will be. So this is a really interesting thing that we're seeing. On, on this i got i have one i got one quick one can i get one quick one from you because i think one, you have a really one, yeah. really unique experience you said that you transferred into being a cannabis lawyer afterwards you did this yes. afterwards so you have a really unique experience i think people think that oh my gosh if i'm a lawyer there i can't so for people that want to be cannabis lawyers brother how what can they do oh. what can they do and then i'll let you go that's Brilliant. it last one Okay. 
as far as being a cannabis lawyer goes, you know, it's like any other branch of law. You just got to read, 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 read everything. First of all, read the law, read all the laws. That That's the first way to start. And then you become educated on all the laws and then all the case law, all the case law that's been decided by judges under those laws. And um, and then then you get a start to understand the 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 complex web that you have in your country. For for example, I'll use the Canadian example, right? So I decided I want to be a cannabis lawyer because uh, being a bankruptcy and insolvency lawyer sucked. My dad's a, a bankruptcy lawyer and no offense to him, but um, I just couldn't be a bankruptcy lawyer anymore. I was going crazy. And, uh, and then I, I transferred to another lawyer who did fraud recovery work. And I found that was also insufferable with the complex litigation to help fraud uh, victims of fraud. And there was just so many problems with that. And uh, it was just one case really of defending a dispensary chain in Toronto, uh, cannabis dispensary chain in Toronto. I was like, this is way better. First of all, I'm, I'm protecting and helping people who need it. And I, uh, I can use my skills to help people get into the market and navigate the regulation. So any lawyer who's been to law school can do it. And, and like, likewise, any doctor who has not received any cannabis medical training can learn because there's all kinds of doctors now that have incredible knowledge about the cannabis plant and its efficacy. And they should also like, you know, read up on, on the latest research. So they're informed. And so they're not, you know, uh, um, uh, becoming part of the problem. So definitely cannabis law is on the rise and you want to get in on it at the ground level in your country. So all you have to do is just become really knowledgeable and, and maybe write a book on your own law. You know, that's it. That's what I did. And that, you know, you could do it. You could totally do it. Or at least write a, write a blog piece on something that, that pisses you off about it. And that, that's a good way to start. And you know that actually I love it. that's probably the best advice. If something if something pisses you off, something makes you mad, you should write about it and then become an expert on it. And there you go. I think that's the best way we could leave it. Do do a podcast on the side perhaps too? Little audio uh, input to that book as well. Oh yes, a little podcast. That's right. So I guess. lastly as well, Mr. Russell, uh, let let everybody know where they can reach you. Give your plug to your book all that sort of good stuff. Where can people see this amazing work that you're doing? Because you are definitely one of the good ones and people should be following you and seeing what's going down, brother. Oh, you're, you're so sweet. Thank you. Yes. Um, I, I can be fo followed. I don't know if I get stuff out there, you can see it on my, my, my blog at cannabislaw.ca. And, uh, and I've got a podcast. You can get it on a number of platforms, cannabis law in Canada. I only, uh, released four episodes so far, but I, I'm up. I've, I've done actually this past week. I recorded three more because the pandemic just threw me backwards. So I'm now I'm out rolling more out. So that's the podcast and um, the book uh, is overpriced. So don't buy it. Just steal it. Um, it's from my uh, publisher, <laughs> Lexus Nexus. In Lexus Nexus, if you're listening, then reduce the price. It's 140 bucks Canadian. I know. That's, uh, you know, chump change for some people, but forget it. it should be like 20 bucks, guys. Um, and it's, uh, it's uh, you can see that online at LexisNexis, uh, Canada, Canada's Cannabis Act. There you go. It's on its third edition now, and it's the best one. It's really, it's sweet. It's, uh, I'm, I'm proud of that one. So there you go. Thank you so much, guys. This has been Man, such a pleasure. Russell.
much love yeah thank you so much much love continue doing what you're doing brother have fun playing with your son and uh man we'll catch up again we're gonna do this again sometime for sure all right take care, take care guys take so it easy brother time, bye Thanks again to Russell Bennett for coming on through to Resonate Radio. Really do appreciate it. I can't wait to have you back on the podcast again. You can find Russell Bennett. He has his own podcast. He's out there. Take a look. Follow that man. Take a look through your Google machines. It's worth it. As you can tell, he's a gem. Thanks again for joining us here on Resonate Radio. You can follow us on Instagram at Team Resonate. You can also follow us over on YouTube and Twitch at Resonate Media. Thank you so much for the support, everybody. And if you're listening over on the Apple Podcast, don't forget to leave a review. It's a big help. We'll see you all soon. Thank you so much.